Last Tuesday, we had our second ever Sydney property meetup for you guys, the community on the podcast, on the YouTube channel, and on the Facebook group, Australian Property Mastery with PK. It was the biggest property meetup ever in Australian history. More than 1,100 people came. What I loved was that there was no selling. There was no run to the back of the room. It was all free, valuable community learning. I shared a quick around the grounds, the best places to invest in Australia state by state and why we had a mortgage broker explain his view of the world and how to unlock borrowing capacity when you're maxed out. We had different members share how they've made hundreds of thousands of dollars, even in the last one year, 18 months, despite interest rates rising. And then we did Q&A talking about whether to buy positive cash flow property and, and actually how counterintuitively positive cash flow is not going to mean you exit the nine to five, how to prepare for recessions and depressions and whether to invest now or wait, what the best investment strategy is for 2023 and so much more in that Q&A session. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for everyone who came, more than 1,100 of you. It was so good to meet you. I'll be doing more of these free events, but without further ado, here it is. Thank you so much. It was so great to see you all live in the flesh and I just want to be able to build a really loving, respectful and financially happy community. Thank you for allowing me to say. Welcome to the Oz Property Investment Mastery Podcast. My name is PK and I help busy people build passive income by buying top 5% growth and cash flow property and build a portfolio using data without wasting months doing research, spending weekends at inspection or catching flights or dropping ten dollars to $20,000 on buyer's agents every single time. So if you're confused, lack confidence and just overwhelmed with all the information and marketing misinformation available online and don't know where to start, then this show is for you. There's something that a friend of mine told me that greatness is not just when you're like a master at something. And I know, I know that the Facebook group and the YouTube channel is called Australian Property Mastery with PK, but greatness is not actually when you're a master at something. Well, not just that. And greatness is not even when you know, you're a master at something and you teach others to master that thing and they become super successful. Even that is not actually greatness. Greatness is when you're a master at something, or actually you're just really good at whatever, like you're really passionate about it. You teach others to be as good, if not better than you, but at the same time, you feel that you're not great at all. Like not great at all. So those three things, and I'm not saying I'm great, and I fit that definition, but I genuinely feel that we're creating this community, this kind of revolution of people who obviously want to get ahead financially, and like obviously that's why we're all here. Pretty sure no one's here for my dad jokes, right? Like you, you guys want to make money, and I can help you do that. But at the same time, we're not doing it to be better than others. We're not doing it to like show off our fancy cars or anything. Like we're just doing it to help our families. We're just doing it to help ourselves. We're just doing it to, you know, live better lives. I'm not the most successful person in the room, and that's really what the Facebook group is about as well. Like, let's learn from each other. Whether they're more successful, less successful, there's always an opportunity um, to learn. And I just want to, just for my selfish reasons, please put your hand up if, um, if you're a client of mine. Okay, not too bad. I would have thought more people would come, that's right. Um, and 
<laughs> I'm not doing everything right. Um, and last question, if your goal in, in property investing is passive income, okay, like actually to reduce your hours at your work in the future or leave your work or maybe your wife, she can leave her work or husband or wife, whatever it is, vice versa. Huh? Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. As in your wife can leave her job. <laughs> Uh, if that's your goal in property investing, right, because there's different goals in property, it's not going the way I anticipated. Uh, if that's your goal in property investing, please put your hand up. Passive income is your goal. Alright, okay. at least we can agree on that. I, I, my, my sort of marketing is working. Good, good job. Alright, um, all right. so let's, let's sort of get into it. I do want everyone to become friends here. This is not about me, like I said before. So what we're going to do right now is a bit of an icebreaker. Is we're going to look to our left or look to our right or maybe kind of tap the person in front of us and ask them to turn around or maybe we're the person turning around. And I want you to find someone that you actually didn't come into this room with, okay? So you don't know them, all right? Well, they can be whoever. Um, and I, I want you to ask them the question, all right? And you have to be friendly, like this is, this, it's not like a dating thing, but you have to be friendly. Um, ask them the question, what is your biggest challenge in property investing right now? Okay, so you have to ask that question. And in the spirit of democratizing learning, I want you to try to solve that for them, or at least give a piece of advice or some sort of golden nugget that will just edge them towards their solution. Do you know what I mean? And then flip the table. So like, then they can ask you what your biggest challenge in property investing is right now. Not like 10 years ago, not like some like making small talk. No small talk, guys, I'll just pause it. No small talk, please. Okay, let's keep to the agenda. I'm very strict on this. <laughs> right. uh, what is your biggest issue or challenge in property investing right now? And try to give them um, some answers or some advice and then vice versa. And I do actually want you to do this as not an excuse for you to be like, I'm super shy, I'm gonna go on my phone, and like post as anonymous on the group or something like that, all right? I do actually want you to do this properly. And, and then, because I'm gonna actually ask for volunteers. I okay? from maybe like three to five volunteers, and that volunteer can regurgitate what the problem was that their partner was facing, and then what advice they gave to their partner. Okay, if there's no volunteers, I will literally point at you and give you the mic. Alright, so I, this is like forced communal learning. So it's very important for you to see it that way. Hopefully these jokes are going down like half well at least. Uh, but is everyone, like, does that make sense? Say yes. Say yes. Okay, alright, let's go. Find anyone like to volunteer what their partner's biggest challenge in property investing was right now? and what their advice to them was, okay? I'm the only comedian up here tonight, so no satire or no one like, you know, having a go. Genuine, genuine question, okay? Does anyone want to volunteer? Please put your hand up, okay. Was that, are you stretching or what? <laughs> uh, my name is Jeff and my partner's name is Juan. So Juan currently has two investment properties, one in his name and one in his partner's name. Uh, partner, the, the property that he bought is in Woodridge in Brisbane, which he bought for $310,000. Uh, currently, <laughs> currently valued at about $350,000. 
and the challenge that he's facing in buying his next property, he's actually doing your course. <laughs> he's doing PK's course and he's just trying to decide where to buy next. What was your, what was your advice then? Like, what, how did you try to solve that problem? Well, 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 I couldn't... <laughs> I couldn't really advise him, like, I haven't done the course, I'm not doing it, so I don't know what to say, like, what is... No, no, I'm not doing it, I will do it, but... <laughs> but, but, I mean, how can I advise someone for everyone, though, I mean, he can't... I do, yes. Go to a third tier lender. <laughs> Liberty Finance. I mean, in all honesty, it's, it's very good advice. If anyone's kind of, we'll go on this, in, on this kind of a bit later as well. But if you are tapped out of your borrowing capacity, I mean, that's a common problem. I know that not many people here have kind of four, five, six, seven properties. But please raise your hand if you have gone to the bank and or your broker and they're like, sorry, you can't really borrow any more money. Please, please raise your hand. Let's see if this is a real, like this is actually a real problem. And so like, you know, thank you for stimulating that conversation. It's actually a really good idea to go to a really, really, really good broker and with all love and affection and respect to brokers, there's brokers and then there's brokers. And if you go to the brokers, like the good ones, um, then they can take you to um, low risk, second tier, third tier lenders, you might find like I did, like, oh, First Mac can lend me another, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars, whereas a CBA would never give me that much anymore. So just a quick piece of advice. That's actually really good advice. Thank you so much. Um, all right, someone else wants to volunteer? Um, okay, John, here you go. G'day, guys. John's my name. So she had had a uh, borrowing capacity question. So as a mortgage broker, I said, why don't you pivot? and stop looking at borrowing in your personal name and try a self-managed super fund. And without disclosing how much he's got, he's got more than enough to consider too. So he's very glad he came today. <laughs> Brilliant, well done. Yeah, yeah, go for it, round of applause, why not, yeah. Thanks, thanks John. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't considered the SMSF, I mean, I'm not licensed to provide any sort of advice on SMSFs, but uh, it's a really good idea to actually think about hey, is my super giving me a cash-on-cash cash return that is going to get me to my retirement? Because chances are most, like, I don't want to drop any names, but like most industry super accounts, they probably aren't getting you double-digit returns consistently or even above 5%. Actually, statistically, that's not been the case over the last 10 years, so you could consider the property. All right, anyone else want to volunteer? I'll maybe take two or three. Yep, um, I'll come to you. Right, so what was the issue your partner was facing and what was your piece of advice to them? Hello, yeah, this is Prensen Prensen. And I want to say about uh, my friend here, his name is Zos. First of all, I want to uh, appreciate them. They come from Melbourne for this seminar. From Melbourne for yeah. this event? Yeah. Oh. I don't know if, if it's worth it, but thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, sorry. And uh, he is doing your course also, and he is learning, and he also said a little bit slow in learning, but he's doing. But uh, what he says is, um, 
is very you know, kind of not confident because he has a surrounding or friends which is, has a negative, uh, has a loss in the property investment. So he's not confident right now to go ahead. I don't have particular answer for that because I'm still learning here. I'm come here for learning. I even don't start your course also. I'm looking for that. And I don't have much advice, but I will say, please go ahead, don't worry, confidence yourself. I mean, you believe you're in your study, go ahead, uh, complete the course, uh, follow the data, and go ahead, so all the best. That is what I want to say. Thank, Thank you so much, yeah. Two for Alcoholics Anonymous, and well done. <laughs> no, but genuinely, thank you for coming. And, and like, let's just, let's see if other people are in that position. Who else has like an environment or ecosystem around them, family, friends, or colleagues or whatever, where everyone's like, you can't talk about property investing to them because tall poppy syndrome, or they're always like putting you down, or they just don't know. And you're like, well, how do I get ahead if no one's around to support me? Who else is in that situation or, or has been in that situation? Okay, now please be honest and raise your hands if you're in that situation. Yeah, so there's quite a few of you. Thank you for being honest. I, I appreciate it. All right. Um, and I just want to say as well, this, this event is not about my course. I'm not selling anything, so no need to bring up the course constantly. <laughs> well, but thank you so much. So, like, last person, um, who else would like to volunteer about the challenge? There's one right there, Paris, behind you, right in the corner. Hi, Piki. Hello. So... Yeah, Amit, uh, he's uh, just about starting his property journey, I think. So, uh, I did make a plug of what he calls by the way. Well, my advice to him was uh, pretty much uh, the kind of advice I got when I first started looking at your course, which is, you know, there's so many questions. The best thing to do is get onto the Facebook page, which is already done. Ask questions. Don't, don't, be, uh, don't be shy. You know, if you don't ask, you won't. If you don't see, you won't find, right? So, just uh, a couple of questions around the course, which I told him the lowdown on. That's about it. Amazing. Thank you. I think it's really important. Actually, the same. I had the same experience. Like we had sort of started investing in property, and then we went to London to to live for one or two years. And my uh, my wife's cousin, her. Uh, sorry, his mother was a property investor. And up until this time, I was sort of thinking, you know, this was like back in 2013, I think, that property's good and, and all that. And like, I know that a lot of people have made a whole bunch of money in property and I, I know it can work. And, and But, you know, you just see so much like marketing and Facebook and I mean, back then Facebook wasn't, Facebook wasn't huge. But just so much like in your face, like get rich quick and retire and like six figure passive income, 10 properties in 10 years. But because obviously I, I was a family member to that person, that cousin and their mother, she had all these properties and she was always in Spain, like chilling. And like for me, that was kind of like one of the aha moments, like, okay, I can't trust all these people trying to sell me courses or sell me buyers, agent services or sell me whatever but I actually have a family member who's legit doing this. So that was like, yeah, it is actually real. And, and hopefully that sinks with you and you connect with that point that property investing, not in five years, maybe not even 10 years, but it really can change your life insofar as allowing you to exit the nine to five or just giving you options to do so. Like that's a reality. It may not happen even in 15 years. Like it's not predictable in that way perfectly down to the year.
but it will happen in the long term if you keep to it. And for me, it was like, yeah, why is this lady always in Spain, right? It's like, there's something here. This is pretty cool. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. And just before we go on, I just want to, because I haven't really prepared for this at all, um, I just, and I mean that in the most respectful way, um, I just want to see your expectations. So I won't give you the mic, but please just raise your hand and please share what you expect to achieve or hear or experience or learn from the event. Just five people, put your hand up and shout it out, and then I'll try to um, kind of meander through those points or like shape the rest of the 90 minutes so that I'm actually adding value because the last thing I want and you want is to drive home and like traffic and be like, that was kind of a waste of time, you know, I could have just learned that off the Facebook group, you know what I mean? So like, I'm just trying to like reverse engineer this. So please just raise your hand or just shout. What what do you want from tonight? Yep, there. Exit strategy. Exit strategy. Go. Well, you, do you want me on this? I really don't want to go. You want me on the stage? Yes. Okay, I'm not going. Uh, uh, someone else? Negotiation tips, okay. Okay, uh, one or two more, right at the back there, yep. Borrowing capacity, and then last one just here. NDIS, okay, such good questions. Alright, so what I might, what I might do is um, I'll dedicate a whole bunch of time, maybe 40 minutes, to Q&A, alright? And that way you can actually like pepper me. And in my humble way, I'll try to add as much value as possible. But I, I do want to do something right now. And once again, I'll, I'll take a, a vote. I want to go around the ground, starting with Sydney, New South Wales, going different states and territories, different cities, and just give you my um, interpretation of what the data is suggesting, whether to buy in those loca locations, um, and why, and rationale, or not. Is that something of interest? Yes. All right, cool. Um, so let's start with Sydney, my favorite place of all. Um, so Sydney is right now the, the fastest growing property market in Australia. And you might be like, what on earth? Like, didn't we just have a huge boom? Where, did, where does all this money come from, right? I had interest rates going up, um, you know, like, like all the cost of living is going up, all this stuff. But please also raise your hands as like a live survey right now. Who has the funds to invest in property right now? Please just raise your hand. So that's a lot of people. And I just, want, I just want that to stick with you. I know that a lot of people are suffering in Australia because of um, you know, Mr. Phil and all that sort of stuff. But also, there's a lot of wealth. And our hearts go out to everyone who's kind of doing it tough, and no doubt they're doing it tough. But I know when you're in your like office or you're at home and you're like, is it the right time to buy property? Is it not the right time to buy property? And all the media is telling you cost of living pressures, interest rates might be rising more, the FX might be, you know, currency might be coming down, unaffordability is at a record high. But nonetheless, we have a whole room, like a thousand people right now, honestly, that can invest in property. Right? And so that shows, I know this is a kind of biased sample size, like I get it, I'm a statistician. But um, you know, there's a lot of wealth out there, a lot of wealth on the sidelines. And so this kind of um, notion that all of a sudden no one can invest in real estate is actually inaccurate because right now, property prices are increasing in Sydney. Now, where is the best place to invest in Sydney? Like, you know, that's kind of like the hotspot kind of thing, right? 
Honestly, I could be wrong, and I don't care if I'm wrong, but what the data is suggesting is that in terms of percentage growth, percentage growth over the next one, two, three, four years, it's very hard to predict exactly, but relatively speaking, in terms of percentage growth, freestanding houses, Blacktown. Okay, anyone live in Blacktown? Uh, Blacktown is, is suggesting to be a really good investment purchase right now. Now, would I buy in Blacktown? Like, hell no. Like, no way would I buy in Blacktown. And, like, nothing against people who live in Blacktown, but it's just still so negatively geared. So, you know, a lot of people think, maybe some are in the crowd, and some of you are like, oh, I don't know if this PK guy is legit, what's his deal? Like, honestly speaking, I wouldn't buy in Sydney, even Blacktown, if it performs even 20% next year, because that thing, that bad boy, is going to cost me like $20,000 to hold. Okay, and a lot of you might be like way rich, okay, you might be like high net worth individuals, you might be looking down upon me, and you'll be like, what does this guy know, and I don't blame you, but like, honestly, even if you're a high net worth individual, sophisticated investor, the fact is that even if you can afford twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 of negative gearing, or negative cash flow from having to hold that property on a yearly basis, that's going to dent into your borrowing capacity. And I just want you to really connect with this point. Long-term wealth is generated based on the total portfolio value that you hold. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? So, the total portfolio value. If you, each time you buy a property, eat into your borrowing capacity, even though you've got a blue chip property or like a property in Sydney, which everyone wants, your borrowing capacity is going down, 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 down. So in the next 10 years, you'll be able to accumulate or accrue a smaller total portfolio value than someone who hasn't bought in Sydney, but has bought, let's say, sub five, 600K properties somewhere else, but wasn't denting their borrowing capacity, their ability to borrow money from the banks every single time. Granted, granted they'll have more properties than you, and there is some headache and maintenance that that comes with that, but their total portfolio value will be big. So what would you prefer? A portfolio value of, I'm just making this up, $5 million diversified across Australia that doubles in the next seven to 10 years, or would you prefer a portfolio value of $3 million in Sydney that doubles in the next seven to 10 years, whilst being heavily negatively geared? So like, I have no bias against Sydney, and I know you guys are all Sydney siders, and probably kind of like, we'll go home in the car and be like, that guy's an idiot, and all that sort of thing. But it's just like my honest advice. I personally don't own any properties um, in Sydney. Um, it's probably a mistake, I probably should have got one ages ago, but I wouldn't from this point onwards. So that's kind of my thoughts on Sydney. It probably will be the best performing market in the next 12 months, even being Perth. Um, but it's really not for the average or even high net worth individual. Like, look, if you've got 30 million to throw, then you know, ignore what I just said. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's go down to Melbourne. So Melbourne, it's very interesting. Like Melbourne has really not had the boom in COVID that much of Australia has had. Like what, Brisbane? Like Brisbane, like I'm not even making this up. It literally went up 50% in eight months. Like that's literally what happened. And being someone who lived in Brisbane, we were just like, what the hell? Like, this is so crazy. But Melbourne didn't have that, at least not everywhere like Brisbane did. Brisbane, you could throw a dart and do really well. So Melbourne, you would think, has a lot of potential to catch up, right? Like, a lot of you go nodding. There's a lot of latent value, we would say. But what's happening right now in Melbourne 
is because of Dan the Man, the state premier, and all of his um, goings-on, I'm apolitical, so I won't say anything more, that's creating a lot of sentiment vacuum out of the real estate market, especially residential. And you guys would have heard, like, there's that land tax, another $1,200 a, um, a year, immediately slapped onto property investors, almost regardless of anything else. So all of these types of things that are happening in Victoria mean in the short term, Melbourne, even despite it being so much value compared to Sydney, this really not likely to be a huge lead up in property prices. Now, does that mean it's a bad place to invest for the long term? Absolutely not. Like, absolutely not. But this is a really critical point. And I think if you, if you connect with what I'm saying right now, like, you'll do really well. We want our real estate or we want our properties to do well in the short term. Okay, and so it's kind of counterintuitive. It's like real estate is a long-term game, right? Like we want it to do well in the long term. No, but compounding means that any gains we achieve in the first one, two, three years, any future gains, even if they're just average, are so much more because in the short term, it's gone up so much. And we want to be able to refinance and take equity out in the first year, in the first two years, and that's how large property uh, portfolios are built quickly. So the name of the game Okay, and not that I have some sort of secret to like time the market perfectly, but the name of the game is short-term growth. And uh, I know that a lot of people are like, oh, but Sydney and Melbourne grow the most, right, over the long term. So why would you ignore Sydney and Melbourne? Who, like, uh, no, this is a completely judgment-free zone, and I really appreciate everyone who's here standing. I uh, apologize for that, but thank you so much for coming. Um, judgment-free zone, but who here thinks that Sydney and Melbourne have always and will always perform better in terms of property prices than the rest of Australia. Please put your hand up. Yeah. And, and that's like a very fair enough assumption. Like it's a very fair enough assumption because you live in Sydney and you see like how much population has grown, you've seen how much infrastructure has gone into Sydney and when I do this event in Melbourne, they think Melbourne is better than Sydney and it's growing at a faster rate, etc, etc. But the truth of the matter is that in the long term, and when I say long term, in 30, 35, 40 years, when you look at property data, and I'm not that old, <laughs> I'm 33, so I wasn't born back then, but we have the benefit of hindsight. Right? Looking at data, Sydney hasn't outperformed. Okay, Sydney or Melbourne has not even outperformed a little old place like Launceston. And you might think, oh, you just cherry-picked a random suburb or a random example to make your point, but actually, if you analyze data, Sydney's not even in the top three. It's not even the top four, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Even Hobart. I mean, it's not even really Australia. Like, you know, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, even Hobart has done better in the last 30 years than, than Sydney. So I just want to try to um, not like kind of vomit my biases or limitations or agenda, but just share with you the truth so that you can avoid making mistakes. And so that's kind of my commentary on Melbourne, where, of course, if you, play, if you buy in a place like, uh, what's that place? Uh, Cranbourne, I think it's called, or something like that, in the kind of eastern, um, sort of southeastern suburbs and, and places like that, there's this tremendous value, but not right now, okay? So that's kind of my thoughts on, on Melbourne, and of course, famous last words, I'll probably boom, and he'll be like, well, what's that guy on about? But for what it's worth. But now let's go to Adelaide. Um, so Adelaide has performed incredibly, incredibly well. I remember when clients started to invest in Adelaide back in 2019 or 20, and the number one question that I got from them was exactly the same question that I get from them now. Why should I invest in Adelaide when it's done nothing 
over the last 10 years. And that's exactly what I get from clients now who are thinking about Perth. It's like, really? Like, Perth has done nothing, basically, in the last 10 years. Adelaide has done super, super well because actually if you look at data, and there's various sources of data where we've triangulated this, past performance is actually inversely correlated to future performance. Okay? It, it's kind of counterintuitive because you think, oh, hey, you know, this area is affordable, there's a beach there, it's a, it's a nice lifestyle um, destination. If it has grown in the past, that means it's likely to grow in the future. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to anything I'm saying, but on an aggregate city-by-city city level, if you look at 10 years past, 10 years future, those areas that underperform in the past outperform in the future. So the, the secret is, okay, in the last 10 years, which are the areas that have done the worst? Okay, and it's not like they're automatically going to do awesome now just because they've sucked in the, in the past. There has to be some sort of pressure point or trigger for them to change their tune or change their trajectory. But that's really what was happening in, in Adelaide and is now happening in Perth as well. But right now, if I'm being honest, the lion's share of short-term cycle, I'm not talking decade-long cycle, which I'm very bullish on Adelaide on, but short-term cycle, which is can I extract enough equity once or twice in the next one or two or three years, that is just coming to the top of its short-term cycle in Adelaide. Okay? Um, it's been three years since the market is doing really well. And I know that in the Facebook group, like, it's really interesting. It's an exercise in human psychology. As soon as an area has already boomed for a year, that's when people start talking about it. Like, do you guys know, like, back in 2021, um, there was a whole bunch of people, not just me, we were starting to talk about Perth. We're like, oh yeah, like, this is the next area. And there was all sorts of people, including buyers agents, were like, no, like, not Perth, right? Because there's so much land supply, and it's, it's, a one, it's a mining town, it's a one industry town, all that sort of thing. And then like the last two years, those properties have gone up 50%. And I, I, don't, I don't think that East Coasters, including myself, fully appreciate that yes, there are places in Perth that have actually gone up 50, 60, some even 65% in the last two or three years. All right, so there's so much potential interstate. Short term, I can tell you none of my clients, and if anyone's a client here, like, you're probably doing it wrong if you're buying in Adelaide right now, none of my clients are buying in metropolitan Adelaide right now. The areas for opportunity are not really even Mount Gambia so much as they used to be, but who wants a free tip? Who wants a free suburb right now? Okay. <laughs> Don't tell agents that PK told you because they get pissed off. They're like, why is there a thousand people calling me about like two properties? And But this area called, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, Noriotpa, Noriotpa, it's kind of just north, uh, northeast of Adelaide, just past Walla. Uh, I can see everyone writing it down. That's an area, it is regional, it is regional, but that ripple effect going from sort of that Salisbury area up to the Elizabeth area in Adelaide, which we didn't touch for various reasons. It's going up out to Gawla, which still has way too much building approvals. By the way, free tip as well, look at building approvals. If building approvals are like in the hundreds, that means that future supply is going to potentially snub or diffuse the demand in that area and therefore prices won't rise as much. But going out from Gawler all the way to Noriopa, that's I'm, I'm very bullish on that area. And it's a small area. If like 10% of you bought in, in that area, then it'll probably go up like 20%. <laughs> so that's not the point I'm saying this, but I don't know, own any properties there. Um, but that, anyway, that, that's kind of my thoughts on, on South Australia. Um, and 
And just sorry, uh, do you mind if I just kind of share things as they come to my mind? I hope that this is not boring. Yeah. So like ripple effect. Ripple effect. I was talking about going up in in Adelaide. Ripple. Everyone thinks about ripple effect as hey, this suburb has gone up in value. Therefore, the suburb right next to it must also go up in value at some point, right? Because it's now more affordable. That's kind of like common sense. But a lot of people are disappointed with that logic because if that neighbouring suburb had lower incomes, then the affordability was always less for that neighbouring or adjacent suburb. So when you look at when you look at ripple effect, just go onto ABS and you can look at incomes. And this is a long-term trend. Just see if the incomes were the same. And if the incomes are the same and one suburb has gone up, then there's a high likelihood of that adjacent suburb going up as well. Okay. Uh, hopefully that was uh, of value. Now let's go to, to Perth. Now Perth has, um, I think on average, the number of listings that Perth has experienced um, on, a, I think it's a monthly basis over the last five years is like 11 or 12,000 properties for sale. Um, right now, there's like 5,000. So what does that tell us as property investors? It tells us that supply is basically 50% down. 50% down. Um, demand, on the other hand, is going up. And so like, I know a lot of people are scared about Perth. Who thinks Perth is a very high-risk uh, opportunity because it's highly exposed to iron ore prices? Please put your hand up. Please be honest as well. Like, I can only give value if you guys are, are kind of are vibing with me. Okay, so not so many people. Okay. That's kind of strange. Anyway, we see that all the time on the Facebook group. So what's actually happened is iron ore prices have already come down 50%. Right? So everyone's like, oh, Perth is going to bust as soon as the mining boom goes away. Well, the mining boom has already gone away. None of these companies, Rio Tinto, BHP, etc., none of them are expanding mines with major labor force anymore. Right? And that's not been happening for more than a year. Yet, in the last 12 months, property prices in Perth grew faster than any other location in Australia. All right? So Perth is no longer directly correlated to iron ore or mining. It's actually a remarkably diversified economy, just like Toowoomba, to, just on a complete tangent in, in Queensland. Just because it's a small location, just because you haven't heard of it, just because you don't have colleagues there, or just because they don't have a big West Connects, that doesn't mean that it's not actually a super diversified, robust, booming economy. I always like to make this point that, you know, in, in Sydney, there's like billions of dollars of investment going in, in metro and, and roads and the airport, etc. And you're like, oh yeah, of course Sydney is going to do well, right? Because there's so much money being thrown in. But on a relative basis, a place like Bundaberg has more investment going in on a relative basis per capita or even per kind of that local ecosystem. So if you th take a rock, you chuck it in the ocean, it's meaningless, or even a lake, take that same rock, chuck it in a bathtub, it actually like overflows the water. So that's kind of how to think about how investment and infrastructure affects property prices. And of course, Sydney's had actually tremendous disproportion, disproportionately more um, investment expenditure and, and infrastructure in the last sort of, you could say since 2014, 15 in the last five years, but going forward, it's not quite the same if you look at city councils, etc. So, so Perth, I'm, I'm very bullish on, and in terms of northwest, southeast, etc., um, we know that the Rockingham area, if anyone who is you know, bought in Rockingham, would work well done, you know, you would have made 50% in the last one, one or two years. Good job on that. 
But the next sort of areas that are really coming to fruition uh, or, or coming to light are down in the Mandra area, down in the Bunbury area. And you look at, and you listen to property experts. There's this philosopher who has actually got a patented software um, on, on property prices and he will never buy in Bunbury because Bunbury has been the worst performer in Perth or broader Perth, okay, in the last 15 years. Prices are basically the same as 15 years ago. But isn't that where the opportunity is? Because if it's directly inversely correlated to previous, to past performance, future performance that is, then that's where we start to salivate. That's where we're like, we can buy something for 300K where it rents out for 450, maybe even 500, depending on the property. It pays for itself basically, and it's gonna go up, okay? That's where smart property investors sort of, you know, go against the tide and follow the data. And I, I mean, not to give a motivational speech or anything, but generally in life, you know, if you're doing something calculated and measured and considered, but different from the herd, those are the people who are generally the most successful. Like most CEOs are a little bit crazy, you know, it's like Elon Musk, etc. But weird people. But that's because they've gone away from the tide. They've swum against the current of the of the river, so to speak. So Perth, I'm, I'm very bullish on it, as you know. Um, Darwin, okay, Darwin is kind of up and down. It's grew, I think, 6% in a quarter, then it fell, I think, 1 or 2% in the next quarter. It's very volatile economy, and even though right now it presents a similar thesis as Perth, okay, in the sense that hasn't grown so much, it kind of missed out on the COVID boom, etc. You can buy so many freestanding houses under 500k, but the fact is that unlike Perth, it is actually, largely speaking, a sort of one industry town, LNG, offshore gas, etc, etc, a lot of transition or transitory workforce. So if you buy in, in Darwin, and, and if you do right now, you'll probably do well over the next one or two or three years, and you'll be like, I follow PK's regime or, or doctrine of getting short-term growth, but as soon as LNG prices come down or a lot of those companies flee from Northern Territory, then your property might also plateau or, or come down. And so we actually want short-term and long-term growth. Uh, that's the sort of name of the game. All right, let's... Um, Who's got property in Queensland here? Please raise your hand. Okay, a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people. Um, so Queensland is still, I would say, a investor's paradise. Okay, it's still an investor's paradise. Brisbane is just starting its next growth cycle, and you'll see that in the data. Generally, when the new growth cycle starts, you can immediately tell its symptoms because the premium end of the market, 1 million, 2 million plus, those properties start rising in value. It's always the areas closest to the CBD or the ocean or, you know, where like, you know, well-off people want to live. Those are the, always the areas that grow first. But those are not the areas that grow the most. And that's where people kind of get it, um, you know, lopsided. The areas that grow the most are often in the more affordable areas, but they grow later. Okay, so right now, I'm not saying it's going to be another boom like last time. By no stretch of the imagination is that likely to happen. But right now, Brisbane is showing signs of green shoots and it is starting its growth cycle. Um, but I can say once again, I don't think any clients are buying freestanding houses in, in Brisbane right now, but the opportunity is more regional. So like places like um, Wilsonton Heights, I think it's called, uh, or Centenary Heights in, um, in Toowoomba, places in just kind of at the end of the, the cycle in, in Bundaberg, uh, in Townsville, of course, there's a lot of opportunity. 
And, you know, I think it's really important if you don't know about Townsville, for example, because you're in Sydney, like, why would you need to know about Townsville? To become educated and ask each other on the group or in person or wherever, ask those who are born in Queensland, ask them about their experiences in Townsville, because there's a lot of also misinformation out there which suggests or subscribes to the fact that Townsville is a one industry town or that unemployment is really high in Townsville. It was. It was 9, 10%. Okay, back in 2015, 16. But then what happened is that the city council created this future plan and they really got their, their act together, so to speak. And what's happened is unemployment is actually now under 3%. It is better than Sydney, right? Townsville is better than Sydney in terms of its economic health. And of course, you have to avoid the flood areas, but if you can avoid the flood areas, then the pickings are there. You can get something under 400K that basically almost pays for itself. Use shore insurance. Again, no offense to Geotex over there, but sure insurance is a really cheap North Queensland or far North Queensland um, insurance provider that are, you know, get the premiums down to sort of $2,000, $3,000 a year. And that makes that property not quite pay for itself in a lot of instances, but 20 bucks a month, you know, 20 bucks a fortnight. That's how much it will cost you. And, and those, Townsville is like a slow burn. It's a slow burn, it's not boomed. Again, it's probably not likely to boom, but it's one of these slow burn areas that um, in the next five years you'll probably find outperform most other places in Australia. Um, so I, okay, so I did okay, Hobart in Tasmania, just to wrap things up, I think I didn't miss anything out. So Hobart, the problem, the problem with Hobart, and I've, I've been wrong before on Hobart, so just I'll put my own hand up and I'll say that two years ago I thought that Hobart had finished its race because it started growing from 2014 and it just grown, grown, grown against all odds. I just honestly don't know how it did this because normally property booms go from between two and a half to about four, four and a half years and property slumps go from between six months to about 14 months, like on average over the long term. But bloody this like Hobart place, man, like it kept, just kept going up, kept going up for like, I would say almost a decade, all the way since like 2014 to basically a year, year and a half ago. So. Hobart is one of these places that the data, and when I say data, I should qualify that, you know, just not throw away words. When we talk about data, we talk long-term data, short-term data, city council data, suburb level data. There's different matrices in which we analyze different factors. But what I'm talking about here is short-term data, like online search and just how many people are going on domain and real estate and looking at these properties in the suburb. That's all, that's all recorded, right? It's all a track. Things like days on market, how quickly are, are properties selling in a particular location, the building approvals in that area, are building approvals spiking because there's a huge boom and developers got really like hungry and well, I'm going to make the most of it, or are building approvals still plateauing, in which case supply is not likely to go up, etc, etc. But when you look at Hobart, it's kind of poised, okay, it's poised for another good run, I'm not going to say a boom, but you know, a relatively healthy run. And, but the fact is that it's just gone up so much and the locals there, if you ask them, the locals simply can't afford most of the properties. Okay, it's a, lot of, a lot of it is driven by migration from Victoria, a lot of you know, people see change, you know, retirees, etc, etc. So when the locals can't afford something, then you know that it's not like the property market is going to fall, but there's a pressure uh, above or there's a ceiling on property prices. The, the thing that causes property prices to stop growing the most is growth in property prices. All right, like, does that make sense? 
If it just grows a lot, then people just can't afford it. And you don't want to buy in an area that's driven by investors. So maybe don't buy in Europa in South Australia after all. Like you don't want to, but that's the difference between a bubble and a boom. Like, you know, please be honest, if you see a media headline on Sydney Morning Herald or whatever, AFR, and so, you know, it's saying bubble to burst, it kind of sometimes, especially if you're new, you're kind of like, oh my God, what should I do? Should I buy now? Should I delay my purchase? Let me ask 10 other people at work who don't own properties what their opinion is. You know, all these kind of things go through your mind. But bubbles only happen if booms are caused by investors. And when more than 40, 50, 60% of um, investment of listings are bought by investors, that is not sustainable. There's no fundamental organic grassroots um, kind of consolidated growth or activity by owner occupiers. Um, and that's what causes issues. And that's why the Sydney property market fell almost 10% in 2017, because in 16 or even 15, almost 40, 50% of all the activity in the housing market here in Sydney was investor driven. So you have to be very careful about that and also kind of just see the forest from the trees, what the media is saying, is it true, is it not? But you know, I wouldn't, I'm not buying in, in, uh, in Tassie right now, but if I would, I wouldn't buy in an expensive area like Hobart, I'd look more towards the regional areas like perhaps Burnie, okay? And I'm not, none of my clients are buying there, I'm just trying to give you some, some ideas of where areas could outperform versus others. All right, so is there any location that someone wants to call out and I didn't cover that they're like just burning to find some insight on? Yes, please. Regional Victoria. Um, so I can't tell you how many of us had bought properties, like probably 300 in Ballarat, 200 in Bendigo, maybe there are people in here from who have worked with, have bought in these places, uh, even Shepparton. Geelong, etc., um, in the sort of period from 2017 all the way up to 19. Even actually, we were buying in Bendigo all the way up to 2021, start of 2022. But once again, what's happened is these areas had grown so much, not because of investors, so it was very sustainable. Like Bendigo, for example, like new hospital or hospital upgrade, hospitals as an infrastructure um, item have the biggest correlation to capital growth versus any other infrastructure. So anytime there's a new hospital going in, or anytime there's like a hospital redevelopment or upgrade, five, six, seven hundred million dollars, you know, new wards or doctors, whatever, like that's an area to further drill down on and you can get that information very easily. So that, I've been very bullish on Victoria, but right now a lot of those areas are, a lot of, are quite overcooked for the same reason I said before, the locals can't, and, and the problem is that when someone makes money, let's say in Ballarat, Okay, when someone makes money in Ballarat because they invested in 2018, okay, and then they tell their colleague or friend or you know, family member, like now, oh, I made so much money in Ballarat, then the natural presumption is like, oh, Ballarat's a good place to buy, right? And, and let me buy, oh, I don't know how to buy in Ballarat because I'm in Sydney and I have no idea how to do these things interstate, I want to catch a flight. So, like, let me just click on one of these Facebook ads where someone's selling a house and land package and it's all done for me, right? It's kind of turnkey. But that's like the worst thing you can do. So what I'm finding right now, I'm finding, what the data is showing is that as of right now, one of the biggest areas where listings are just going through the roof, especially investor listings or investors having to sell, is Ballarat. So to answer your question very uh, quickly, I'm quite bearish on regional Victoria because of Dan Andrews, but also because of some of these things that I've mentioned. But the only exception to that is potentially Geelong. 
um, and like I've mentioned this before, like places like Morlaine and, and places like that, which are a little bit more rough around the edges, but really close to the CBD and, and Geelong, those have a lot of value potential because I think a lot of people in Melbourne and Victoria are starting to realize that the train lines that were promised and all the infrastructure that was promised in Melton out west, real cheap areas under 500k, it's not happening. So it's better to go down to Geelong, it's actually a really easy commute up to, to Melbourne proper and it's a better lifestyle, closer to the ocean, etc, etc. Um, so yeah, thanks for that question. Um, Cairns. Um, so this is, I bought a property in Cairns in 2015 or 16, I want to say, and it's just like in the worst, okay, it's been like one of the worst performers, and my, my wife will tell you as well, she's my accountant at the same time, um, yeah, we bought that for like 400-ish, and right now it's probably worth, the CB actually just gave that valuation almost 600, almost 600, so like 50% growth in um, seven, eight years is like terrible, like it's, it's really crap. Um, so, what that tells me is that that was a really bad investment decision. But why did I buy that in Cairns at the time? There was this Hong Kong billionaire, um, forget his name, he's a cool dude, and he was going to build like this massive casino called Aquis or something like no one talked about. Um, so it was, it was kind of like pumped up, and this was like when I was more of a noob in property, and actually, truth be told, I shouldn't say this, I know this is being recorded, but I was actually following a lot of buyer's agent content back then, and a lot of them were, were bigging up uh, cans as like the food bowl of Asia, because there's a lot of agriculture and things like that that go into cans, and, and they were saying how the, um, the exchange rate is likely to go down, which actually did, the Aussie dollar did go down, which meant that it's cheaper for tourists to come, and of course, Cairns, it's like a lifestyle tourist destination, especially from China, Korea, a lot of those people love Cairns, I don't know why. Um, the, it's like a fantastic place, you know? But it's not Cairns that they're coming for, right? Cairns is kind of a dump, like no offense. It's like going up to the Great Barrier Reef, or Douglas, etc. That's the reason they, the tourist money, or that's where the tourist money is going for. Anyway, long, long story short, the Hong Kong billionaire, he, he lost all his money, didn't do the casino, and nothing really happened in Cairns. So right now, a lot of clients have been buying in Cairns because the economy and the council have completely changed their tune, especially the southern corridor around sort of Mount Sheridan and uh, White Rock, I think the suburb is. Um, back two or three years ago, there was hundreds of new building approvals, a lot of house land packages coming in um, on the south side of Cairns. That's where a lot of families live. But a lot of those have been built out now, and so there's not really that glut of supply. So that's one reason, amongst many, that, uh, that some areas in, in Cairns are quite attractive. And it's a bit like the Gold Coast, where on one side you've got the hills, so you can't really develop out there. The other side, you've got um, the ocean, can't do anything over there. On the north side, you've actually got much more expensive areas, like Trinity Beach and Northern Beaches in Cairns. And on the south side, so long as those building approvals have been built, those houses are up, a lot of that land is no longer zoned for, for low-density residential. So it's kind of got that Gold Coast vibe, but um, so hopefully that answers your question. But Gold Coast is like, I mean, it's unbiased, I live in the Gold Coast, but even if I didn't, I'm the most bullish of any location in Australia. Um, the Gold Coast is like the area that I'm the most bullish on for various, various reasons, um, but I would not buy an investment property there myself for my own personal strategy. And once again, I'm just sharing this because I'm trying to, um, not inspire, but I'm trying to endow you with the, the, the reality that 
you know, everyone's strategy is different and growth is not everything. And the reason I wouldn't buy there is that you can't get anything positive cash flow. You can't get anything that's even close to neutral. All right, like if you want to buy in Gold Coast, like be my guest, I'll tell you right now, buy in Narang, okay? Just go off and buy there, of course, the right pocket, right street, right property, etc., etc. But still, that thing is going to cost you. So um, if you're okay, and everyone's different, if you're okay with, you know, $5,000 negative gearing every year, go for it. And sorry for all of my clients who I've just given away a lot of secrets here. But, you know, there's better ways of investing. You can get that same growth in a better cash flow environment. Okay, that's kind of like what the, the point I'm trying to make. What we'll, what we'll do now is I will do Q&A as well. Uh, but we'll spend some time doing Q&A. I think that's very important. But I, I didn't want to be like the center of attention in this event. So what I've asked is for three people, three people whom I respect a lot, um, to come up and speak. And don't worry, no one's selling anything. There's nothing for you to buy or anything like that. Um, but I'll introduce them one by one as, as we go through. But the first person I want to introduce, and you might have seen him on, on my uh, YouTube channel, John Manchamelli. And, um, oh, there we go. <laughs> Got a fan club right here. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't we all? Um, so, the reason I've asked him to, to come up and speak is because he owns a fleet of Maseratis and I'm trying to add to my collection. No, that's just very facetious, but the reason I've asked him to speak is because he's a very experienced property investor, and I think experience is something that we can all learn from. He's made, with all due respect and love and affection, a whole bunch of mistakes, and he's also made a whole bunch of successes for both himself and his family. So I've asked him to speak about not only like himself, but also like, what he sees as the mistakes that property investors make. And when I did that, that sort of hands-up exercise at the start, you guys were saying, like, most of you here are not experienced property investors. And so I think it really behooves us, for all of us, including me, to listen to someone like of John's stature, who's been a mortgage broker for I don't know how long. And uh, this is not a plug, by the way. I don't, don't even think he's that good of a mortgage broker, no offense. But, uh, that was a joke, uh, that was a joke. Like, this is not a plug for him, but he's been in the industry for a long time. He used to be on Sky News. Um, he's bought multiple, 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 probably sold properties, etc., etc. has made all the mistakes. So like, within five seconds, that really doesn't do him justice. I'm very embarrassed to only give him five or so minutes, but at least we can learn in that time period. So please give uh, John a, a huge round of applause. Um, and you can go on the stage if you want, um, but it's totally up to you. Alright, so um, where, where do I go from here, PK? What do you want me to You know, it's, it's interesting when I reflect on 20 years and seeing those clients that have done well and those clients that haven't done well, I, I reflect on, you know, what was it that made them get to five or more properties? And by the way, congratulations if you've got five or more properties because you are in the top 1% in Australia. Isn't it amazing that stat? You only need five properties to be in the top one percent. All investors, by the way, not Australians, all investors. Isn't that amazing? And so, um, I was listening on a podcast in Bushy. Anyone heard of Bushy's podcast? Yeah. Yeah. And there was he asked me a question, and he said, "You know, what was it that distinguishes people that were very good and became successful property investors?" And one of the things I reflected on was. It was this ability to identify themselves 
as a property investor and not on the outcome. Now, what does that actually mean? Think of it like this way. Someone's been offered a cigarette and one of the respondents says, no, thank you, I'm trying to quit smoking. Which in the scheme of things is, it's pretty good, yeah? You can understand that. But the other person says, no, thank you, I'm not a smoker. Can people, can you pick up the differences there? And so, what I've come to realise is that when you're focused on the outcome and then you reverse engineer the process, you can lose motivation. So for example, some of you have walked in here today and said, I need to learn how to make $80,000 a year. And then you're gonna reverse engineer the process. I'm gonna contact my mortgage broker, I'm gonna contact my accountant. But what invariably happens is that you can start making mistakes and you lose the motivation. And so when you, so that's a, if you look at three concentric circles, you're focusing on the outcome, and then on the second circle, you've got your process, and then there's you in the middle, right? But the really successful guys like PK, they, they identify themselves inherently as a property investor, and then they work in outwards. And so they, they are fundamentally property investors. They've got the processes in place, and the outcome comes. It actually comes. And everything that they do, including the mistakes, is part of the journey. It's just a learning part of the journey. They don't lose sight of it because most people, unfortunately, stop at one or two. Anyway, I hope that helps. <laughs> um, and in terms of my property journey or the things that I've learned from clients and stuff like that, I'm going to talk about my mistakes first because I don't want to talk about any of my successes. And the biggest mistakes that I that I that I came up, well, I, I did was buying properties off the plan from people that I thought that knew what they were doing. And with all due respect to people who are selling that, I, they, I think they mean well, but the reality is the data is just not there. I can, I personally have bought three, and they, they cost me millions, millions of dollars. Because had I bought that $450,000 property off the plan in, say, a house in Blacktown 10 years ago, that would have been worth, what, 1.3 today at least? Okay, so I think buying off the plan and brand new is very dangerous. There's always exceptions to the rule, but there's nothing wrong with a house on a block of land that may not look special, that is in a landlocked location where there's no land or anything else around there. And there's obviously nuances around that, but your typical average block um, appeals to middle-class Australia where there isn't a lot of renters, but it's mainly owner-occupiers, that's, that's fantastic. Um, does anyone want to ask me any questions? Any, any questions at all? Yeah, gentleman in the back. What makes me a good mortgage broker? The people behind me. So when you interview a mortgage broker, what you want to do is really understand who is the ecosystem behind you. Okay, so uh, and also, try and find a mortgage broker that specialises in investment property. It's really important because mortgage brokers are a bit like the GPs of the medical world. They have to know a little bit of everything. But if you find a GP that specialises in a certain area, gynaecology, whatever it is, they're going to get really good at it. Okay? So as an example, last week my database, well, basically, thank you for contacting me, 
you would have seen an email from me saying that there is a lender now that has put a 1% buffer on investment property purchases. So if you weren't a, if you weren't a mortgage broker that was in tune with that, that could have slipped through the radar. Okay. So number one, find a broker that's really passionate about investing. And then secondly, ask about the team behind them. Okay. Now my team behind me, I have I have access to what's called power brokers, where I ask my clients, you're in a position where you need to start bringing in external manpower to help resource your file. Let me explain this. A lot of you are going to mortgage brokers and hoping that they will do the work for free. But do you realise mortgage brokers are inundated at the moment and they're choosing the sort of work that, that they want? And if you come to them and say, I've got servicing issues and I, you know, I've got three or four and I want you to do all this work, they, they, hopefully they can do that. But if they've got a power broker where you're happy to invest to recruit that power broker, all of a sudden that power broker is going to get all these lenders and say, you know that 1% buffer that you came out with last week? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Okay. Loan admin offices is really important as well. A person that's gonna get all your documents, package it up and send it through, and then um, follow it through the banking system. And one mortgage broker, that's a lot that you're asking for. So if they've got a good team, then that's really important. Okay. Any other questions? I've, got to, I've, been, I've been told to wrap it up, but any final questions? Going once? All right, one, one last one. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Are you mentioned that you'll pay some uh, debts to the properties? What do you do with those properties? I still have them. <laughs> but I am selling them, actually. I'm finally in a position where I can sell them. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's a really, um, you know, no one really wants to hear about admin staff on a <laughs> evening, but there's an incredible, incredibly important point. Um, so I think everyone should uh, sort of interview your mortgage broker and, and see if they meet the criteria of some of these things that John is talking about. And he's a really nice guy as well, so have a chat with him later if you want. Um, the next person I want to introduce you is you're going to be like, why on earth did you do this? Because, like, He's a buyer's agent. <laughs> what on earth is going on? He has not paid me um, to to have him up here. In fact, I had a, a coffee or a drink with him on Sunday afternoon in Potts Point, um, and I thought he was a really nice guy. And it's no other than none other than Joe Tucker, who who leads the the Facebook group Oz Property Investors. Um, yeah, go for it if you want to give it a clap. Um, uh, I just want to say as well that this is not a plug for, for Joe and I really will be incredibly disappointed if anyone signs up to him after this event and like, you know, uses him. That will just be like a stab in my heart. Like, don't do that. <laughs> this is not about that, okay? But the reason I've got him up here and the reason he's blushing a little bit right now is that he's one of the few, the very few buyer's agents who's actually legit. So instead of me talking about the con artists in the industry, instead of me talking about what not to do, instead of me talking about how buyers agents can rip you a new one, okay, instead of me, you, you all know I'm biased, right? I got an agenda. I thought it would be interesting to see if an ethical, competent, top 1% buyers agent 
would share his own experience with the buyer's agent and maybe other things for the purpose of simply teaching. Okay, he's not here to get any business. I'm definitely not getting any cut or anything like that. But isn't that more powerful than me talking about it? And he's genuinely a super nice guy. And um, yeah, I, I don't want to pick him up too much, but here you go, here's Joe. Oh, thank you very much. That was unreal. That was the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. So thank you very much, PK. Who else is shocked to see a buyer's agent up here? I am blown away. Um, but I think the reason is, is because I follow something very similar to what PK teaches, and I fell for exactly what he talks about um, from a buyer's agent. You know, I went for the flashy, all cash, you know, beautiful car, Facebook ad. Um, but I think, yeah, it's easy to do, but it's not the most responsible thing to do. Um, the biggest problem I had was I handed the keys of my financial future over to someone else hoping that they would drive my car well. And when it's a rental, you go a bit crazy and the, the, they take off and do what they want, but it's your financial future um, that you have in your hands. So that is one of the biggest lessons that I take away. What I take away from community and groups like this, the true value, there is one person, if you guys all look around, you're, you're all looking for one or two people that have extra value for you, that help you. Um, go to that next level, right? Like a lot of the community, the reason why we built Oz Property Investors was we saw PK's group and we're like, oh wow, we could just, just do what he does. Um, but no, it wasn't. It was because we didn't have people in our circle, right? That love property, that talk property, that see the value in property. We can all see how hard it is to make it to that next level and what happens, like these questions that are gonna get thrown up. What about serviceability? How do we overcome that? Um, so the real <clears throat> value of this session is out there. When everything wraps up and you'll forget everything that, that I've said, it's everything that, that PK said, but you will meet some core people that are your people that you can grow your portfolio together with, that you can do joint venture deals, that you can do value add deals to. Um, but anyway, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to tell you how terrible uh, buyers agents are um, and how you can do all of this. Absolutely, everybody in this room can go out there and buy an investment grade property by yourself. Um, so I will tell you my little story. I, uh, my first deal was, well, I thought I could do it all by myself, right? I went to all the free seminars where you run to the back of the room. I even signed up, but their credit card machine didn't work. So I was like, oh, they called me the next day. I'm like, I just Googled you. You guys aren't very popular. Like, what's going on? And they didn't have a justifiable answer for me. So lucky I didn't get spruiked too. Um, but where was my point to that, if anyone knows? Um, my journey, that's right. So I did all of that. I thought I could do it all by myself, but you need to create a competent team. And it first starts with an amazing broker, having the conversation to understand what is your, how much can I borrow and what does it look like? But also having a bit of a think about strategy as well. But um, you then have to ask some questions. So as PK said, he's like, on Sunday, I thought, oh, we'll grab a drink with PK, why not? He'd love the guy. Um, but I wanted to go through a couple of questions that you can ask a buyer's agent, a mortgage broker, accountant, your professional team to understand if they're good ones or, or not so good ones. Um, but to go full circle again, my, my experience with a buyer's agent was I clicked on their fancy Facebook ad, um, they told me about this amazing hotspot in Queensland, which must have been amazing because I'd never heard of the place. Um, so I started 
walking up the stairs of this brand new house. I got the keys and as soon as I got to the bottom of the stairs to get there, I had like I had a little tear in my eye, but I couldn't cry because there was the real estate agent behind me. So couldn't cry, but I wanted to because it was an absolute dump. I got this place, handed the keys of my financial future to this guy. We bought it for 280,000. We needed some light cosmetic renovation and we spent $30,000 on it. Um, can anyone guess what it revalued at after our $30,000 renovation? 200, no, no, it wouldn't be the same, yeah, that would suck. No, $280,000, the exact amount of money that we paid for it is what it got revalued at. And um, I think that that would have set my portfolio back, but it, it made me stop to think about how can I take those keys back from somebody else and go out there and make it for myself and build a portfolio. So that's what you guys have to do today is take away and learn as much as you can because everybody here has some golden nuggets of wisdom that you can, you can share. But um, uh, okay, the first one, I'm not gonna, there's not too many. Um, how are you getting paid? Um, one of the things that happens a lot in the real estate industry is everybody is getting a kickback, commission, referral, free friend, all of that stuff. So you want to understand, am I paying you a fixed price fee and um, what is that going to look like? Um, for a mortgage broker, it's a similar question. For, for an accountant, how are you getting paid? How am I, well actually for an accountant, sorry, for a mortgage broker, they get paid by the bank, so scrap that one. I'm, I'm trying to make it as relevant. What kickbacks do you get from brokers and other professionals so you can understand? Sometimes there are, um, sometimes there are a lot of kickbacks and you're referred a bit of property that's not relevant. Um, another really good one is how long have you been personally investing? What, what does your portfolio look like and is it a portfolio that I want to replicate? Because if it's full of house and land packages, you're probably saying, you know what, this person's going to steer me down this path and they're not the professional that I want to take in the car. And we are all on an investment journey, but you are the driver, and in the passenger seat, you've got your professionals, you've got your broker, you've got your conveyancer, you've got your, your other people that are helping you. Um, and what's pricing structure, try and understand that. When was the last time you were in that location? If that professional wants to do, boot, if that professional does boots on the ground, do they actually go to these places, or do they, and um, this is a hot, sorry, this is a hotly debated topic. Yeah, I won't go there. Um, and yeah, will you, who is doing the job, right? The, this is the biggest point, is the high volume buyers agencies that are out there, you can't do this business high volume, unfortunately. I don't believe you can, it is too difficult. Like what will happen when you click on the Facebook ad, you will speak to the director and they just have a massive lead funnel, right? A thousand leads in and a thousand shitty properties that are gonna come through that. So you wanna know who is buying the property for you and I imagine it's not going to be them. They need to be the one finding, negotiating, and securing that for you. But I feel like to scrap all of that, just get educated, spend the time, energy, and resources to do this all yourself, and you can absolutely do it. I had a, a, a so has anyone seen that interview that I did with PK on the YouTube channel? Anyone? Like, it, what was it? It wasn't, what it was first pitched to me was education versus a buyer's agent. And I said, I'm not doing the interview because education is foundational to your property journey. So that's what I want to leave, leave you guys on. And uh, thank you very much, PK. You built an amazing community. Everyone should take advantage of the community that you have right here because you all have something to share and you can all learn and grow. But um, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and, and you, genuinely, you generally won't find 
I, I think you won't be able to find even three or four buyers agents in Australia that will give it straight like Joe just did to you. So that really speaks for his integrity and, and his character. And, and you guys all know, I always talk about the three C's, competence, character, and care. Anyone who you sort of engage or give your money to, you have to do your due diligence. Do they have these three C's? And like I said, I'm not a proponent of buyer's agents, and, and Joe's definitely not a client of mine. I have more than 75 buyer's agent clients, but he is someone that I know will still be around if he wants to in 10 years time, 20 years time, 30 years time, 40 years time, because he's gonna do the right thing by his clients, he already is. So uh, it was kind of a, a curveball that we threw into that session, but thank you so much, Joe, for, uh, for doing it. Um, and before we do Q&A, the last person I want to get up here is um, someone who I admire equally as much as the preceding two people, and his name is Prashad Krishnamurthy. And the reason I asked him um, to, to come up here is, well, it's a little bit selfish uh, because he's done the course and done really well. Um, but you know, you can, you can make the argument that everyone did well in the boom, right? Like course, no course, you know, everyone's done well because the whole bloody thing has gone up. But the reason I've asked uh, Prashad to come up and sort of share, not his experience with the course, because tonight's not about the course, uh, just kind of his sharing his experience of investing, is because he's made 300 grand, more than $300,000 post-boom, okay? Ever since interest rates started rising, ever since Melbourne, Sydney started tanking, He's made more than 300k since I think November or December 2021. So this is the exact same time when the media was saying don't invest in property. The media was saying put your financial future on hold and perhaps your family, friends, colleagues, other people were saying this is not the right time, keep it in the bank account, right? So you could have kept it in the bank account and gone backwards with inflation eroding your money. But what I really respect is Prasad took sort of control of his financial future, and he could have done this with Joe, probably, he could have done this with other people. So this is not about the course, this is about him actually, you know, not being a sideline commentator and having a, another opinion on the property market, but actually like actually putting his, what, what do they say, his uh, money with where his mouth is. So 300K equity, I think all properties, all basically paying for them. So anyway, I want to steal your funder. Thank you so much, Prasad. Yeah. Hello everyone, uh, my legs are trembling now. I've never spoken before a huge crowd like this. But anyway, thanks PK. Okay, just to give you a background of mine, I actually came to this global country as an immigrant in 2012. And uh, as a typical person from uh, the part of the, the world where I come from, we all tend to think that you know we need to have enough savings in our account so that we can you know, save it for the rainy days. So I followed, I mean in 2015, I just followed uh, the herd and bought a primary property residence for myself and uh, I was sitting on that. And then after that, my only intention was to pay off the loan, be debt free and live a happy life and give the property to my children. So. And then all of a sudden, in 2020, 2021, mid of 2021, when we were halfway through the COVID, and I just was, you know, I was browsing a lot of YouTube channels, and I happened to 
uh, hit uh, PK's channel and then he basically changed my perspective completely because I had been following his videos for quite some time and then he, I mean, all this while I had been thinking that I need to have enough savings, pay off the loan, uh, pay off the, uh, I mean be debt free. And here comes a person who comes and tells uh, me that why are you debt free? You should be having a lot of debt. And I was thinking, how does that work? But what I had failed to realize at that point of time was that it gives you a passive income and it also grows in value over a period of time, which uh, I had never thought of to be honest, because I was very near to begin with. And anyway, my wife was also pushing me to, you know, to be more uh, aggressive and that's when I started. So. The first property that I bought, actually, I, I don't know if I did a mistake at that point of time, I will speak now, but uh, the, the very first market that I tried to enter when I did this course was Adelaide. And that was a super hot market at that time. And it took me at least six months to get the first property. And by the time I bought this property, I was literally frustrated with myself because I never thought that it could take six months and then I thought, okay, no, maybe I should stop here, maybe because I had done a mistake by doing this course, but, uh, uh, I had, okay. but the beauty of uh, PK's course is that every Tuesday you have uh, these uh, weekly calls with, you know, the, with his clients where they share their experiences and here I was really amazed to see that people were buying uh, properties left, right and center and I was thinking, okay, maybe there is something wrong with my strategy, there may be something wrong with my approach and I think there yeah, I was, I wouldn't say I was completely wrong in my approach but yeah, maybe I could have been more aggressive, broke the uh, chains of, you know, reticence uh, which I think, you know, this course actually helps you with because it uh, tells you how to negotiate, how to be a good negotiator. Even if you are not a good negotiator by nature, you have all the points um, listed which you could actually take forward and talk to all the agents. I never really thought before this that you know I can uh, buy a property in say Perth or Adelaide or anywhere in Queensland by just sitting at my house. I never thought and then uh, I, I just followed uh, you know, uh, his course and uh, I also uh, was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm still lucky to be part of this community because, you know, there is a great uh, amount of knowledge that you get from each other's experiences. There are, I wouldn't say that I had made a mistake, uh, I mean, I haven't made a mistake so far. I have still made mistakes, but I'm still trying to learn. Uh, but uh, a few of the things that I actually take uh, away as a lesson uh, or you know good things for myself is that uh, I mean when you when you try to invest overseas, when you try to uh, invest uh, interstate you need to have a good relationship with all the agents like you know the property manager your tenant you should be really taking care of the tenants because you know that's that's something which you need to have in yourself so that you know you can be a good investor. And uh, other than 
you know, uh, also one thing which I haven't done so far, but you know, I am think I think I will be doing it now is I've never had a good broker, a mortgage broker so far. But yes, uh, I think you should have all the right people, ask the right questions. You should know where. I mean, you should not just know where, which suburb to buy. You should perhaps also. I mean, you should not perhaps. You should really know which street you should buy in. What kind of uh, you know house? What kind of property you should buy in? Because if you, uh, otherwise, if you follow, uh, because I, before PK, I had been to maybe four or five property. Uh, sorry, buyers agents. And uh, I think I now, as I talk, I think uh, most of them, not most, all of them tried to rip me off. Uh, but yeah, uh, I have been somehow lucky that uh, nothing about you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, I think you sh this gives you the confidence to build the portfolio by yourself and, you know, build a passive income. So thanks to all of you. And, I mean, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's just a good lesson and and how to change mindset from saving your way to retirement, which unless you're on a million bucks a year, it's just not not going to happen, right? Um, to investing your way to retirement, and I mean, I really appreciate uh, Prasad, and and I think we're on the same page because he's actually not into money, like surprisingly or well, not surprisingly, he's actually a very spiritual person and he has higher. Um, there was a consciousness, you could say, like more to life than just property. So he, he does identify himself as a property investor, but not exclusively as an investor. And I think that's the beauty of it. Like, it, this is, we're not doing this because we're money hungry. We're doing this because we want freedom. Okay, and I'll talk about freedom and how that's maybe oversold another time. But um, for now, let's, let's just leave it at that. Uh, but thank you so much for Sath and yeah, four properties and it's just incredible work um, against the grain of interest rates. Let's use the last 15 to 20 minutes um, to take Q&A. Okay, shoot. Yes. Oh, is there Samir or, or Paris or someone? Can you, give, can you get the mic going around, please? Yep. Chuck it up. Hi, everyone. Um, if... Uh, um, I would be able to, let's say, buy um, three properties right now between four hundred fifty to five hundred fifty thousand dollars. Based on um, your strategy, would would I just go ahead and buy all three at the same time, or would I go like one, settle in, wait for the market to move in another place, go for the next one? Like, what are your thoughts around that? So as long as you, and and I'll try to answer them quickly as well. Um, as long as you have the right cash buffers, as long as you've done your due diligence, as long as you're not gambling, and you know that the short-term data suggests that demand will outstrip supply, and that the long-term data suggests that the opposite is unlikely to occur anytime soon, then there's no reason to sit on your hands. Okay, there's so many clients, not just myself, and I'm sure other people who are just DIYing it, even without the course, who are buying simultaneously multiple properties, like three properties, three years. It's a vanity metric. I mean, no one really cares how many properties you have, but if each of them are going up in value, then why wait, right? Why wait? Okay, next question. Uh, yep, just there. Hi, BK. Uh, so my question is, uh, how do you prepare for the X factor, like, you know, when you're buying properties, and you can't predict like a recession or, or like COVID happened. And it could have gone either way, right? We have an innovation stopped. 
uh, people are lose, losing jobs left, right, and center. You, you don't know what's going to happen. It could have gone either way if the government hadn't stepped in and you know done what they've done. But you don't know what's going to happen in that situation. And if you think about it, people are like, oh, I should sell property, or sell my shares, because everything's going to go down. If you think logically, the employment has stopped. Uh, employment is like you know failing, and inflation has stopped. So how do you prepare for those scenarios? And, and you know because we we're buying properties and putting all our baskets and you know just just investing there, right? Yeah. So how do we prepare for that? Sure, great question. So I'll approach it in two ways. One is, should I like buy in those times? And the second question is, how do we prepare and not have to sell in those times? So the first one is, you know, like when you look at things like recessions, let's have a look at every single recession in the last 50 years in Australia, of which there's not that many. The maximum amount of quantum by which property prices fell was in the GFC by 8%, 7 or 8%. So you just have to ask yourself, all right, if that was a GFC, sure, something bigger than the GFC could happen. Like, I don't know, right? I'm, I'm, I can't predict the future. But let's say double of the GFC, and let's say that happens in 10 years' time, okay? So seven times, we 14% drop in property values. If you invest now, and that happens in 10 years' time, is it really affecting you, right? Or you might say, well, that's all good and well because you've made money up until then, and, but what about investing in those times? Well, investing in the GFC, even if you timed it wrong, even if you lost six, uh, 6%, 7%, you know, you timed it like just incredibly badly, you fast forward 2008 to 2023, it's at 15 years, you're up three times, four times, whatever it is, right? I don't know the number. So the most important answer to that question is, can you afford to hold that property through the thick and thin? And it's not my quote, I'm not going to claim it, but there's a quote that says that capital growth is the engine. Okay, that is what gets us to the moon. That is what gets us out of our nine to five, and I'll explain in a second how. The cash flow is the oil. All right, cash flow is the oil. We need that oil running through the engine, even if the property's going up, but it's gonna cost us so much because we've lost our jobs because of a GFC or whatever, and we need to sell. No one wants that. We want to be able to always hold these properties, never have to sell them. So both are important, and, and that's how I, I think about it. A black swan event of dire proportions like the depression, okay, what if that happens? Then we're all screwed, right? Well, then we're screwed anyway, right? So it's like, there's no two ways about it. Are you just gonna keep your money in the bank in case a depression happens? I mean, maybe, and maybe that's right for you. We all have different risk appetites, but no risk, no gain as well. And I think, not, not that it's you, but I think in some communities, including the community I've come from, like more of an Indian type background, for some reason that is the concept. Like, I don't want to take any risk, and I don't want any gain. Or these days it's like no risk or gain, and none of that actually works, right? And that Prasad implied that very nicely as well. Thank you for that question. Next one. Uh, I'll start with the confession first. I've posted uh, anonymously on your group. <laughs> uh, my question is more around. Um, I think, yeah, I'll tell you reasons later, maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, my question is uh, for someone who's struggling to save for a deposit and um, wants to start rent vesting with a very like trying to save at one on one hand and paying rent, 
how should they get into their investing? What are the top three things or tips that you would give for someone who's trying to be So, right investing, thank you for the question. Um, the question is like, what are the top three tips for someone trying to save money and, and rent this? So, rent vesting is, is this concept of uh, buying, not buying rather, just renting where you live and you have that flexibility and rent is often cheaper than a mortgage for the areas that are lifestyle driven you actually want to live. Like I don't know how many people here live in like let's say Manly or whatever, but it's really hard to afford a property there, but rents maybe you can afford, right? So renting is cheaper and you use your savings from your PAYG or your job, use that capital to invest in property. And so like this, I don't think there's any three points that I can say, like I don't want to make stuff up, I don't want to like just sell something. Really, like I, you can ask, once again, I always refer to my wife, somehow she's more honest than I am. Like I always ask, ask my wife, when I was um, a graduate and I was rent vesting, I, I was renting, I didn't own my own place of residence, I didn't even used to go and eat ice cream, right? Like, not that that is what anyone should do, but on the way home from work, and I was earning good coin uh, right out of uni because I worked really hard for it, but I would see the 7-Eleven and I'd be like, have a tough day, it'd be really hot. I was like, should I have that Magnum or should I not? It's like a good dog, bad dog, as the American Indians say, and the good dog always won. I was like, no, I'm gonna save that money and I'm gonna put it to my deposit. Had I gone on the Euro trip, not that that's a bad thing, had I splurged on ice cream, had I splurged on designer, like honestly, I got this shirt just for this event. I hope you appreciate it. Like, it's a bloody expensive t-shirt. I have never owned anything this expensive. But like, had I splurged on things like this back then, I wouldn't be here sharing what I am with you. So I think there's something to be said about sacrifice. I probably overdid it, okay? I probably overdid it, not that you have to. A property investor can also enjoy the finer things in life, but within reason, because they're working towards delayed gratification. Okay, that is the, the name of the game. I don't want to say that you can, you know, have the time of your life and also get financial independence. Okay, very few people can achieve that. Yeah. Basically, uh, by while choosing the property, do you think whether uh, right now if it's a negative gearing or positive gearing, does it matter? Because I don't see if the property is negative. Like I have my friend, one of my friend, few friends actually. They, were, they have like four properties in Sydney right now. And just he said four properties, then you are okay. But I don't think it's okay because he is almost paying almost 30 to 35,000 extra every year. So he should somehow sell one property. I, I told him, but it's always no, we have to keep it. So how much negative gearing should we? It depends on everyone's, but still, I don't think if, uh, it's a good thing if it's too much of a negative gearing. What do you think about it? I agree, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless that person's personal household budget, and at the start of the course, not that you have to do a course for this, like a household budget, everyone should have one, okay? It's very easy. Get Excel or Google Sheets, it's free. Income expenses, okay? And if you can afford $30,000 negative gearing, then maybe you should consider it, but what is the opportunity cost? For that right what if you could buy the same quantum of properties right that actually pay you money yes you have to shift your mindset away from sydney like that is the killer like that shift of mindset because i know everyone around you will be like you're a complete fool like sydney's where it's at right i mean everyone has got everyone here has probably got hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity in their homes 
because of the Sydney property booms, not just one, but multiple, plural. So it's such a hard thing to say, I'm going to look elsewhere. But then you think, actually all these other places have boomed just as much, if not more, whilst being higher cash flow, but I just have this confirmation bias of people around me. Okay, so I think you answered your, uh, not financial advice, but I'd sell those bad boys. <laughs> Hi PK, I'm Nicole. Um, I think I'm not. I don't have a question, but I think the one common thing we haven't spoken about is let's take emotion out of investing. So what I mean is we got to run the numbers. If the numbers stack up, that's a good deal. And the numbers might not stack up for your friend, but they might stack up for you. Okay. So don't think of your friend or your neighbour or your brother or sister. Think of what your, like, how is it going to affect you and your, you know, husband, wife, family, um, and then also take the emotion out of it. Like, oh, I wouldn't want to live there. Why would I invest there? Who cares? You're not living there. You're just investing there. Yeah, that was great. Fantastic. Um, and I often talk about in my YouTube videos, like, you can't actually tell if something is a decent investment just by looking at it, okay? Even if driving by it. So if any of you, with all love and affection, think, oh, this is a good property because you like the way it looks, then that's completely the wrong way to look about it, or look at it, um, to be honest. You have to, it's almost like coding, not that I'm an IT person, I'm the farthest from that sphere of life, but like a coder, like a software developer, um, I hope I do this justice, like, you're not looking at the software interface, you're looking at the code behind it, like those, those lines and stuff, like the matrix, I guess, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right, that's what you're looking at. So when you look at a property, you shouldn't even look. Is it a brick and tile and this and that? How many windows and how many bedrooms? That stuff will come later, it's important. But look at the underbelly, what is the code? It's like, see the matrix through it, okay? I, I... <laughs> Yeah, no, good, good point. Anyone else? Yeah. Firstly, it's good to see you in flesh and blood. Um, my question is, you, you mentioned the three C's, and, and I know this session is not about the fourth C, which is the course, and I'm sure... <laughs> and I'm sure there are quite a few people here who probably want to hear this as well. Um, we are kind of contemplating whether to do the course or not, hearing what Prashant mentioned that the metrics actually drills down towards what street to buy in. I just want to ask you, what sort of metrics do you guys actually look at? Or does the course help you? Um, as well as, like obviously, you look at the infrastructure that's coming into the area. So if you can elaborate on that. I'll try to, the, the question is, what does the course look at? What do I look at in terms of identifying the, the right property within the suburb? And I'll, I'll answer this in a way that's, um, kind of mutually exclusive from the course, because you can do this even without doing the course. So a lot of it is just uncommon sense, okay? Like uh, Nicole, was it? Uh, Nicole was saying, be emotionless, okay? Uncommon sense is surprisingly um, uncommon, right? It's just common sense. So when you identify the suburb, that's your first layer of analysis. Suburb selection makes you 70 to 80% of capital growth. Okay, so if you're like, oh, I know, I know the suburb that I live in and I can spot this fantastic deal because I know every single value of every single property in the street and that one is cheap and I can, I can make $30,000 on that one on the way and I'm going to buy that property, you're already doing it wrong because what about the suburb? 
I'd rather buy at market value in a suburb that will grow tremendously than under market value in a suburb that will plateau. So your question is not about suburb, but I just wanted to preface that. So how to find the best street, the best pocket, or the best type of property, there's various starting points, but a lot of it's just like flood zones, okay? And, and I know, like, hopefully I'm connecting with you on this, I know that whenever you hear someone's like, oh, flood zones, you, part of your mind is like, oh my god, like, I'm gonna do some research, like, I'm gonna call the council, or I need to Google this stuff, and like, figure out those like weird maps with like red and blue and I was like, oh, just, just get Joe to do it. Don't do that, okay? Don't get Joe to do that. <laughs> it's actually really easy, okay? Flood zones, bushfire zones. Talk to a property manager. Go on ratemyagent.com.au, all right? And just call. This is the other thing. Like, please be friends with the telephone. Be friends with your mobile phone. Don't be shy, don't be shy, don't be shy. You know, in the Wolf of Wall Street or like something like the original Wall Street movie, there were, no, 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 not Wall, Wall Street, the Will Smith one, Pursuit of Happiness. He figured, I was telling Joe this the other day, he was figuring out that he can make 10%, 20% extra calls by, instead of, as a stockbroker, instead of hanging up the phone, by just keeping it on his ear, by just like hitting the hang up button, you know, like old school phones. So. Um, it's not the perfect analogy, but that's what property investing is. Once you identify the suburb, to find the right property, you have to connect with local property managers. Selling agents to some extent, but local property managers. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Don't pay a buying agent $15,000 to make phone calls for you. Okay, you can do those phone calls yourself, and they will tell you. Hey, PK, look, um, this area has a lot of housing commission, okay? Stay clear, five blocks away or something like that from housing commission. This area is a huge strip, it's a nice strip, but it's only investor properties here. No one actually wants to live here. They kind of don't maintain those properties properly, all this kind of, that local intel that you're like, oh my God, hey, I know nothing about Adelaide, I know nothing about Perth, how am I gonna find that stuff out? Just be that Will Smith character, right? Just pick up the phone, talk to the property manager. And more so than that, a lot of this you can get online. Like you can get a lot of this stuff online. Like for example, easements, okay? If you want to develop out that property, if you want to build a granny flat or whatever, once again, that stuff is available online. Um, Dialogic, I think it's called, or once again, call the council. There's 30 to 35 different flight paths. Okay, flight paths is another one. Make sure you're not gonna be buying in an area that a new flight path is coming into. Doesn't always make the biggest difference, but it can, okay? It's proven that it can make a difference as well. So once again, Air, Air Services website. Okay, Air Services, like the flight control people nationally that do that. Um, there's so many things to look for, but everything can be done literally while you're at work. Like, no offense to any bosses, but you can do it while you're at work. Um, okay, next question. I'll, I'll start out with you. Hi, um, Daniel Coles. I'm, I'm looking for it. Um, most of the topics what I'm seeing on the Facebook post, like I'm maxed out on a borrowing capacity or can I improve a borrowing capacity as well. So, and there are a lot of feedbacks about it. Where you, can, you can renovate your property, get the increase your rent, and you can subdivide the property and do some additional talks or something. So in your course content, do you cover all those subdivisions inside of the uh, uh, 
like how we can do the subdivision, what sort of land size, council, each council have different different regulations. So does it cover that? I'll take that with you one-on-one -on -one, because I really do want to respect everyone and not talk about the courses. This is not meant to be for them. I respect the question. I'll talk with you one-on-one. -on -one. Um, okay. Can we get a microphone at the back here? There's a few questions over there. It's, uh, it's about four past eight. Can I go for another ten minutes? Please don't raise your hand if you're okay with another ten minutes. Thank you. That's it. Thank you. Thanks, Peter, first of all, and thanks all. Uh, so my question is, we always talk about buying a positive real property, and I also did the same. But then the interest rate was 2%, 3%, now it's 6%. And in 90s, I was checking the interest rate was 17 plus percent on the notes. How to tackle that? Brilliant, brilliant question. This is such a good question. I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, in the 90s, in, uh, yields were also like more than 10% in a lot of properties. But that aside, you will not exit your 9 to 5 based on positive cash flow properties. That sounds like a stupid comment, right? But you will not be able to build a, let's say, $100,000 passive income net, net, based on buying positive cash flow properties. No one has ever really done that, buying just standard buy and hold in positive cash flow properties. If they have, let me know, because I would like to copy that strategy, but it really doesn't work. And the reason is, like you were saying, interest rates go up, interest rates go down, you might have one-off expenses that in a year, oh, you've got to spend $5,000 on a hot water cylinder plus you know, bathroom renovation or whatever it is, right? The way that you exit your nine to five and transform your active income to passive income is capital growth. Now, I'm not saying to live off equity, like that's a false paradise right there. What I'm suggesting, and this is not my strategy, anyone, like probably thousands of people have done it, is you buy, let's say, Let's go with six properties, okay? You buy six properties over the course of, you know, your next four or five years or however many. And by the way, I just want to say, I know I know, I post a lot of deals about, oh, this person has bought five properties in a year or this many properties in a short period of time, just like Prashant has. I never did that myself, so most of these people are doing better than myself. I, it took me four or five years just to get to three properties. Okay, so like, that should give you some solace as well. Um, but the point that I'm trying to get at is that if you buy those six properties, you let capital growth do its thing for the next five, 10, 15 years, however long, after that portfolio matures, okay, matures, then you can sell down one, two, three properties, okay? And then use the profit, of course, after tax, and the tax can be managed through um, appropriate entities and tax structures, use that profit from capital gains to pay off the properties that you don't sell. Okay, so now you're left with three, four, however many properties, and those are your golden geese that you don't have any debt on, you don't have any encumbrance on. So then a GFC happens or your interest rates go up, who cares? I don't have any debt. Okay, you don't want to retire with debt. You want to retire your debt before you retire. Okay, that's the name of the game. And so it's very important to understand property as a long-term game. It's all about capital growth. So you can retire the debt through capital growth, not through necessarily principal and interest. Okay, everyone's strategy is different. I have nothing against principal and interest. I'm paying principal and interest right now. But it's more effective or you could say faster to pay off properties through the capital growth itself but like I said before, throughout that journey, you need cash flow. 
they're positive cash flow or neutral cash flow or slightly negative cash flow, it should be suitable so you never have to sell any property, you never have to sell it throughout that journey of 5, 10, 15 years, however long it takes. So that is how property investing is done. Don't just go for the, oh, 7% yield, right? It must be a good property. What if it's a crap location? Like, you know, don't make a long-term decision on a short-term motion. All right, let's go over here. Hey, PK. Um, thanks for hosting tonight. So my question is on scaling and serviceability. So naturally, as you scale your portfolio, you get your DTRs getting higher and higher, and the implication is you can't buy more. Um, gone are the Steve McKnight days and I could sort of get access to debt so much easier and then post, I think, 2018-19 when sort of APRA really clamped down on investors. My question to you is that as you scaled your portfolio, like, what all leaders did you pull to keep getting funding? So maybe you use, like, vendor financing and unconventional strategies or just wait for your income to grow or, I guess, like, really, like, what other different avenues could pursue? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm very risk averse and conservative by nature, so I didn't even do half the things that many more smarter people than I often do in terms of this situation. The one, one point I just want to make at the start is that borrowing capacity, interest rates, int um, serviceability buffers, responsible lending, all of these things happen in cycles. Okay, sometimes they tighten up, sometimes they become real loose and liberal. So once again, we shouldn't say, I don't want to become a property investor because I can only, will ever be able to borrow for two properties. Like that's foolhardy thinking, because in 10 years, maybe you can buy another three properties. Do you know what I mean? So that's just one quick point. Um, but like we mentioned before, some ways to get around it is go to second or third tier lenders. Of course, second, third tier lenders mean that you're paying high interest rates. But maybe that's a cost of business. Maybe you go with the first mag or pepper money um, for one year, get that loan, okay? Well, that property grows in value, and then once your own income increases because you've got a raise at your job or whatever the case is, you refinance to a big four again, get the interest rate back down. In that time, you've made 100 grand in capital growth, okay? So that opportunity cost. And the one thing I want to talk about, and I'm by no means licensed to, to actually mention this or go into any level of detail, is that right from the get-go, if you know, like if you know that property investing is your vehicle of choice for wealth creation long-term, you may decide to buy each and every property in an individual and separate trust. And that way, and once again, I, you should speak to your accountants about this, each way, that way, sorry, um, the debt and income profile that's associated with each trust is siloed or separated to that trust alone. And the theory goes, and there's so many downsides to the strategy, and I've done a YouTube video on it, so don't take like you know these words as flippant and act on them. But the theory goes that therefore you can buy five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty properties as long as each property is paying for itself in a separate trust. And the bank will won't look at the preceding trust or your own income or debt situation in order to borrow for your next property. I haven't done this myself, okay? I'm not speaking from experience. Like I said, I'm not actually a very smart person or a smart investor. I just apply myself. And I think, you know, isn't that really funny when I, there's this book I read, The, the Magic of Thinking Big. Who's it by? I can't remember. It's like one of these classics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think one of those guys. And, you know, it's from the written of the 20s or 30s or something like that. And he said, like, you know, that feeling that you get when you see an old schoolmate, you know, who you knew wasn't smart, okay, who you knew was getting D's or C's or E's or F's at school, 
but he's the one that's driving the Ferrari. He's the one that has got that, that house. He's the one that's got that life. And you're thinking, like, what? Like, I'm the one who went to grad school, undergrad, postgrad. I'm the one who was smart. I'm the one who's working at nine to nine. I'm the one who's slaving for a 3% pay rise every year. Why has that guy got it? Okay? Don't be the person who has to think that. Because the only difference between that guy and you, or that gal and you, is that they actually applied themselves smartly. Didn't become another statistic of the hamster wheel that is a nine to five. Okay, don't become a statistic. Use the hamster wheel for your serviceability, okay? But not as an end of its, in of itself, if that means. I don't mean to disrespect anyone who's a nine to five. I, I did that thing myself as well. Okay, I've been there and done that. Um, Okay, so it, it is getting a little bit late, so we, we will wrap it up there. Um, but like I said before, this is not the end, okay? If you can stay, it would mean a world to me if, if you stayed and, and made connections, made friends. Um, even if it's just one person, maybe give yourself homework, okay? I know it's so tempting. I'm just going to leave, okay? Not talk to anyone, just like that. And I, I might tell someone about it tomorrow or post in the group how it was a waste of time. But just make one friend. Okay, one friend is all you need, that one friend could change your life, honestly speaking. Okay, that is abundance mindset, and personally speaking, I just want to say how grateful I am for each and every one of you, whether you know it or not, because you have changed my life. Okay, you honestly have, this has almost become like a passion or a purpose for my existence. It's kind of very weird to say this, but it, it really has, and, and it means a lot to me, client or not. When people DM me or email me saying, I bought this property, I made this much, and I'm like, hang on, saying, yeah, you don't do the course. And that's fine. Like, for me, it's no longer about the course beyond that now. It's just about making an impact. So I really appreciate you making time. I'll be in the corner over there, and we can do like, um, we can do, but thank you to our guest speakers as well. Thank you.